Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Last week we had the end of the holiday of Hanukkah and we had the installation of a new government here in Israel. And I want to say a few words which I think uh, considers, considers the relationship between these two facts, Hanukkah and the new government in Israel. The last elections were a surprise to much of the Israeli electorate, giving very strong representation of the religious Zionists and the ultra-Orthodox. The parties that are in make up the new government are the Likud, which is essentially a secular party, and its partners are either religious Zionists or ultra-Orthodox. While the ultra-Orthodox are using their strength to ensure their cultural autonomy, the religious Zionists are trying to strengthen the Jewish identity of the state. In other words, the ultra-Orthodox, if you will, are worried only about their own constituency, whereas the religious Zionists have a broader view of the state. But together... They both value the Jewish identity of the state more than its democratic nature, while liberal Israelis value democratic principles over the nation-state. So it's a very interesting thing. The more liberal parties, the non-religious parties, are interested in the democratic nature of the state, having a Jewish state. And the religious parties, either like religious Zionists who want the state to be a reflect its Jewish origins, and the uh, the ultra orthodox just want to be left alone and take what they can from the budget of the state in order to support their own institutions. Now, in a sense, Israel has much in common with the United States. Both people were formed through covenantal agreements and aspired to much more than just being a nation-state. But while the founding fathers of the U.S. invoked God in their founding documents, yet they chose to separate church and state. That's very interesting. A lot of Americans don't realize God is mentioned in the major documents that founded the United States, but the founders insisted on the separation of church and state. Israel's founders did just the opposite. In exhausting discussions between the religious minority and the secular majority, the founders of the Jewish state decided to omit God from the Declaration of Independence, but make no separation of synagogue and state. In other words, Israel's founders did the opposite of what the American founders did. The American founders mentioned God and separated religion from state, 
and the Israeli founders did did not mention God and combined the state with with the synagogue, the church, if you will. The um, the interesting two moments at the onset of the newly established Jewish state back in 1948 defines its inter- interdependence from religion. They made what was known as the status quo. The first one was a letter from David Ben-Gurion, the founder of Israel. He sent a letter to Rabbi Yehuda Leif Fishman, the political leader of religious Zionism at that time. He established a state rabbinate with jurisdiction over the personal status of all Jewish citizens and guaranteeing the sanctity of the Sabbath in the public sphere. The other was the meeting of Ben-Gurion with the ultra-Orthodox leader named Rabbi Avram Yeshua Karlitz, who lived in Bray Brak in 1952, and Ben-Gurion granted cultural autonomy to Israel's ultra-Orthodox. And then Israel and Rabbi Karlitz were intent on avoiding a bloody conflict between the secular state and its tiny ultra-Orthodox minority. But both were also convinced that this was a provisional solution. It was a temporary solution. At at that time, I believe there were about 400 full-time yeshiva students. Carlos, Rabbi Carlos, thought that Israel was a short-term experiment, while Prime Minister Ben-Gurion was convinced that the ultra-Orthodox would eventually disappear. It's very interesting. Both the rabbi and Ben-Gurion had opposite ideas about the future of the state. Now, 70 years later, Israel continues to thrive as a regional power, and the ultra-Orthodox grew to more than one million people, with 13% of Israelis describing themselves as ultra-Orthodox, 13%. So, according to the estimates, by 2050, they're expected to be 30% of the population. Ultra-Orthodox will be 30% of the population. At the onset of the state, back in uh, 1948, the secularists were the great majority, while already today, the ultra-Orthodox, the religious Zionists, and the traditionalists constitute the majority of Israelis. So the ad hoc agreements back in 1948 continue to create tension to this very day because there was no consensus about the role of religion in the state at its inception. Israel's ultra-Orthodox took part in the political process initially merely to ensure their independence and cultural autonomy, but this has led them to their involvement in the management of much of the government affairs. Right now, a lot of the ministries in the new government, the heads of these ministries, the ministers, are ultra-Orthodox. So because there is no consensus, the secularism-religion war will probably continue to rage with every election. 
which is to the detriment of Israeli society, because each side reverts to the narrative of victimhood for the sake of survival. Now, let's talk about Hanukkah, which the holiday which was just finished. <coughs> we shouldn't forget that the Hasmonean kingdom didn't last forever. They kicked out the Greeks, but they didn't last forever. It disintegrated through denominational divisions and civil war. One of the major Jewish scholars from the 12th century Spain was a man called Nachmanides. He wrote that a major reason for the failure of the Hasmonean project was the convergence of spiritual and political power. Um, at that time, he was in 12th century Spain, and the, the, the church and the state uh, were combined. And what happened in this time of the Maccabees was the temple priests who led the insurrection against the Greeks declared themselves as kings as well. That was a big mistake on their part. The lesson from this history is quite evident. The separation of power is necessary. As Nachmanides wrote back in the 12th century, it was not it was not for the Hasmoneans to rule, but only to perform the service of God. They should have given over the kingship to the house of David. They should not have become rulers. They should have remained in the service of the temple. The sages teach that kings should not be anointed from among the priests. That is, there must be a separation of spiritual and political power. That was the lesson of the Hanukkah story. The Hasmonean kingdom, the second Jewish commonwealth, lost its independence and denigrated into a vassal of the Roman state and developed what's called Sadducean leanings, centering earthly and spiritual power in the temple priests. The Pharisees, who were opposed to Sadducees, locked in political compact with, uh, combat with the Sadducees, replaced the spiritual leadership of the temple priests with those of the Torah scholars, the rabbis. If you look at the study a little bit of Jewish history, the great struggle was between what's called the Sadducees, which were the kingly group, the, uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the priestly group, and the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees who essentially developed the, uh, the oral Torah that we, uh, that we follow today. And the, the Torah scholars established a system that it remains to survive the ensuing 2,000 years in exile. The moment that spiritual leaders take political control, what happens is that corruption ensues, and corruption is followed by destruction. The former U.S. ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, wrote a memoir. It's called Sledgehammer. He wrote in his memoir that the Abraham Accords, the agreements between Israel and a number of uh, Middle Eastern um, Muslim states, 
were possible only because all interested parties decided to put decades of conflict aside and grapple with the question, how are we going to survive in the Middle East together? They addressed one problem, and that brought them together. So, too, for the sake of Israel's survival, both secular and religious Israelis must try to forget for a few moments at least the battles fought in the last century and instead try to find an answer to a very fundamental question. How will we survive together? That is the basic question that has to be answered. Every sector of Israeli Jews ought to do its own introspection. Ultra-Orthodox Jews must start thinking of others and realize that if the project called the State of Israel falters, it will also mean the destruction of the world of the yeshivas and of the Hasidic courts. It's time to take responsibility to see that the state survives, because if the state does not survive, God forbid, their institutions will not survive either. And religious Zionists must understand that religion is an exercise between the human being and the creator, and not just between the state and its citizens. Secular Jews must urgently recognize the demographic shift. There are more and more Jews who are believers and who are considered Orthodox or Zionist Orthodox, and they have to urgently recognize the demographic shift in Israel since the state was created and engage in a meaningful partnership with the traditional parts of Israeli society in order to ensure our existence. We have to learn from the tale of the Hasmoneans. We have to remember that priests or rabbis should teach, speak up and fight for the identity of the Jewish people. They should decry corruption like the prophets of old, but be extremely wary of the use of political power. A healthy tension between the spiritual leadership and the political leadership is essential not only for functioning democracy, but for very survival itself. And that, I think, is the lesson of Hanukkah, just as our new government was sworn in last week. The, by the way, the, the original post-election forecast was optimistic. Netanyahu put it together a block of far-right and ultra-Orthodox. Uh, they, they survived five grueling election campaigns. And uh, uh, what's the name? Uh, the Likud uh, and, and, uh, and Netanyahu were in, in the wilderness politically. And now they have achieved its goal. He has a majority of 64 seats in the 120-seat Knesset, and his allies were supposed to easily establish a cohesive, radical right-wing government that would complete its term and last for four years. But a lot of bad blood has been accumulating among members of Netanyahu's bloc, 
and it's cast doubt over the initially optimistic predictions. The clashes and tensions between Netanyahu and his would-be partners during the coalition talks caused many people to recalculate the possibility of this government lasting. In theory, the new government is in place to serve out a full term, most, lo- motive, most notably because of its ideological, co- ideological coherence. But the tiresome weeks of endless negotiations exposed its first fault, the barely existent level of trust between Netanyahu and his allies, which compelled them to present her with an unprecedented list of demands ahead of the government's formation, and Netanyahu, it must be said, caved in to almost all their conditions. Each of the parties sat down with Netanyahu and Likud, they gave him their demands, and they put it down on paper. So Netanyahu is holding a list of demands from his coalition partners. They know him well. They know what his reputation is regarding living up to his commitments. That's why they insisted on getting everything down on paper. The coalition deals that were revealed last week include hundreds of clauses with budgets, legislation, appointments, and governmental authorities that are be transferred to Netanyahu's allies, as well as a litany of radical reforms regarding the judicial system, the police, the army, the West Bank settlements, immigration, and even the law of return. If only half of the suggested upheavals are carried out, Israel will dramatically change. Netanyahu signed off on every whim and caprice his extremist partners brought up, setting his government on an immediate collision course with the top security, police, and legal officials who are all sounding the alarm already about the proposed changes. No government is formed. The, the, now that the government is formed, the returning prime minister's confidence say he will stall, delay, and postpone many of the com- commitments he just gave. In other words, even the friends of Netanyahu say that he agreed to everything because he had no intention of keeping the agreements. Uh, the 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 uh, years ago there was a uh, a prime minister in Israel and somebody said to him what you promised he said yes I promised but I didn't promise to keep my promise and I think that's the situation that Tanyahu is in now he agreed to just about every demand of the parties who helped him form a government coalition. And now he's stuck with all these written agreements. He's got to figure his way out. He simply can't keep all those agreements. Many of them are in contradictory. So the it's interesting because somebody said, one of the experts said, on the day of the inauguration, the equation will reverse because there are a lot of people in the government now from the other parties who will think 10 times before they bring down the government and say goodbye to the best deal of their lives. 
In other words, they had all kind of agreements. They made all kind of agreements from Netanyahu, and even if he doesn't keep the agreements, there's a good possibility they'll keep their mouth shut because they're sitting in positions of power now, something they didn't expect to happen after five elections, and they simply are not going to give it up easily by expecting Netanyahu to keep his promises. The, uh, however, the negotiations could be the easy part. Maintaining a coalition with all kind of extremist allies will probably be a more complicated challenge to Netanyahu. His partners are eager to prove themselves and will try to hold him accountable to his words. Oh, he has to lower the flames of fear and protest surrounding his new government from outside and from within. These are very interesting times. I'll be back after the break. Hello again. You're back with Jay Shapiro. I mentioned in the previous segment of the program, it's very interesting that the founders of the United States mention God in their founding documents, but they kept separation between religion and state. The founders of Israel did not mention God in their founding document, but there is a close relationship between religion and state, and that leads to all kinds of interesting problems. The coalition agreements that were signed last week that allowed Netanyahu to form the new government, these agreements include countless clauses related to religion in general, and in particular to religion and state relationship. These agreements, the coalition agreements, range from new funding for an array of programs and institutions to promote Jewish identity, there were clauses about the status of the Western Wall and the status of the Temple Mount. There are clauses to cancel previous government's kashrut and kosher cell phone reform, and the list goes on. Clauses in coalition agreements that don't have defined numbers and dates are seldom translated into action. They sign these agreements between the parties in order to form the government so that each party can go back to its electorate and say, I am now in a government that agrees to do such and such. But if there are no dates and no empowering clauses, it's simply words. So they don't pan out. So since we don't know yet what the government will do, we have to ask ourselves, what are the most dramatic clauses in the agreements just taken at their face value? Now, the incoming coalition, most dramatic implication is on the question of who is a Jew. This regards conversion and the law of return. The agreements call on the state to go back to the pre-2015 situation. What does this mean? I, this may have been a little bit confusing, but I want to bring the listeners up to date. In 2015, 
the High Court ruled that the state had to recognize independent conversion courts, whether they were Orthodox or any other denomination. The ruling came after years in which the court nearly really begged the state to decide on the basic issue, but the legislature was unable or unwilling to do so. The agreements, however, do not affect the decisions made in the 1980s, which were to recognize reform and conservative conversion done abroad in order to be careful not to anger diaspora Jews. One of the things the government of Israel wanted to do was to avoid having a conflict with the Jews in the diaspora, and therefore they made a decision to recognize reform and conservative conversions that were made abroad. Since 2016, the official chief of rabbinate mandated conversion courts here in Israel approved approximately 3,000 conversions per year, while the private courts oversaw another 3,000 plus conversions in total. This means that the conversion courts, uh, the private ones, had nearly 600 a year, amounting to more than 15% of all conversions. Now, a report on religion and the state was authored recently from the Israel Democracy Institute. It hasn't been published yet, but its contents have been reeled. In this, there is a historical brief of conversion in Israel and explained that a high court ruling in 1970 recognized the children of Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers as Jews. Keep in mind that halacha, Jewish law, basic religious law, recognizes the status of the child according to the status of the mother. If the mother is Jewish, the child is Jewish. If the mother is not Jewish, the child is not Jewish. In 1970, the High Court ruling was that the children of Jewish fathers and non-Jewish mothers as Jews. Now that was back in 1970, and the legislature responded in 1970 by enacting a law that sort of struck a balance. On the one hand, Israel recognizes civil, for civil purposes anyone who has a Jewish grandparent as a kind of Jewish descendant. Keep in mind that a lot of these uh, people who came from Russia, with a big influx of Jews from Russia, had Jewish grandparents, but parents were not Jewish. So the, on one hand, they recognized for civil purposes anyone who has a Jewish grandparent as a kind of Jewish descendant. But on the other hand, according to traditional Jewish law, the Jew is only someone who was born to his mo Jewish mother. So there was sort of a trade-off. There was a famous um, a co coalition of a professor, Ruth Gavison, together with Rabbi Yaakov Maiden of, the, of one of the yeshivas here. They made a covenant, and they also proposed a trade-off, a slightly different one. On the one hand, 
it would shrink the grandfather clause, grandchild clause, so that it would demand from those who arrived via the law of return to fulfill a preparation period and perhaps study Hebrew and swear allegiance to the state. But on the other hand, the state would recognize reform and conservative conversions carried out even in Israel. This too would strike a balance between the citizenship aspect and the religious aspect. I notice it sounds complicated, but it's a very important issue. Now, the incoming coalition's philosophy is to shrink the definition on both ends. On the one hand, the new coalition wants to cancel the grandchild clause and at the same time cancel non-rabbinic conversions. This, instead of being a trade-off, would narrow the ability both to move to Israel and to become Jewish within the country. In other words, the new agreement, if carried out by the government, would limit those who are entitled to come on Aliyah. Now, it's interesting that many of the people who come to Israel come on Aliyah, but are not Jewish according to law, still feel very Jewish. More than 90%, according to data uh, obtained from the One Million Lobby, it's an organization which acts on behalf of immigrants from the former USSR. Canceling the grandchild clause would be a slap in the face. A lot of them would not be considered Jews, even if their grandfather was Jewish. Which is a very interesting thing. A lot of this uh, became uh, more, uh, more, more of an issue because of the huge, thank God, the huge uh, immigration from Russia. For years, we fought to get the Russians to uh, Russia to release his Jews, and now finally the doors to, behind the Iron Curtain were open. Thousands of uh, Jews came to Israel. I shouldn't say thousands of Jews. Thousands of people came to Israel, some of whose Jewishness was not halachically correct. Now, there's no doubt that the Russians who came to Israel have contributed to the uh, to the country. There's no two ways about it. Doctors and, and uh, nurses and all kinds of people trained in Russia have certainly helped Israel and increased, in, uh, increased the Jewish population. The problem is the nature of their Jewishness. So uh, according to the, uh, to the data, if in 1990, 93% of people who made Aliyah from the former USSR were Jewish. In 2015, that number fell to 42%, and in 2020, just a little less than 24%, which amounted to approximately 3,000 Jews, Olim, coming here. The rabbinate's conversions conduct approximately 3,000 a year, and therefore, in, if the downward trend in Jewish people coming to Israel continues and private conversion courts are banned, the number of non-Jews making Aliyah will eclipse the number of those converting. So to, the, to clip the wings of the conversion courts in Israel at the same time to keep allowing people to come to Israel whose Jewishness is in question 
could change the whole nature of the country. So the, another motivation to change the laws to prevent taking advantage of Aliyah benefits, the number of people who came and then left after a year or two, also after it, dov it doubled in 2017. Because when you come to Israel and you're accepting this, you're given all kinds of benefits that local Israelis don't have. People took advantage of these benefits, particularly the financial aspects, and then they left the country. So uh, when the law was changed, that the people received a passport and benefits immediately upon coming to Israel instead of waiting a year with temporary passports, this incentivizes people to take advantage of the option to re receive citizenship, but the concept of the interim passport could be brought back without canceling the law of return. The whole thing is a little bit complicated. I'm, I'm, I'm trying very much not to confuse the listeners. Another interesting aspect is agreement on the left to diminish the law of return on the grounds that it discriminates against Arabs who don't have any of these rights. There are Arabs, citizens of Israel, who don't have any of the rights that are given to new Jewish olim. On the other hand, they have responsibilities which they themselves don't do. For example, Arabs are not required to enter the military. That's from the very beginning of the state. You can't expect to force Arabs to fight against their brothers. However, Arabs can, and some do, do uh, non-military service. They can work as social workers in hospitals, nurses, and so forth. In other words, there are a lot of religious Jews, for example, who don't go into the army, but they do national service. And I have to say that in my, my own family. All the boys, the men, the men in my family served in the army, and until recently, all of the girls did national duty for two years. And that is the case, same kind of thing that could be expected and should be expected from the Arabs. They're not asked to go into the army, but could do social work in their own communities. That, that's a story unto itself. So, the, however, there's widespread support for both the left and the right to leave the law as it is. On the left, this comes from sociological grounds. A Jew can also be someone who identifies in, as a Jew, even he's not Jewish according to halacha. This is how the left sees it. A person comes to Israel, serves in the army, identifies as a Jew, but he's not halachically a Jew. The left says, that's okay, that's fine. On the right, there's an incentive to keep things as they are for democratic reasons. People who come using the grandfather clause are not Arabs and therefore took the democratic demographic towards the Jewish majority. In other words, they say the grandfather clause is, is not very good halachically because the people are really not Jewish, but they identify as the Jews, and that's important because of the demographic problems. So we want to keep a Jewish majority. So the issue is therefore not a simple right-left divide. And also, there's public opinion. Some 70% of Jewish Israelis believe a person born to a non-Jewish mother is not Jewish. 70% of Israelis, even Israelis who are not religious, say 
If you don't have a Jewish mother, you're not Jewish. Five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten. Eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. You're back again with Jay Shapiro. Last week, something very shameful happened at the United Nations. Keep in mind that actually the United Nations created the State of Israel back when they vote back in the late 1940s. But since it uh, didn't really do anything about establishing the state, it voted that the land of Palestine should be divided between the Jews and the Arabs, and the Arabs did not accept the UN vote, the, uh, the UN decision. Israel did, and what we had was the War of Independence. That's all history now. But the UN has consistently been anti-Israel, and last week, despite intensive diplomatic efforts, the UN General Assembly decided to seek an advisory opinion from the International Court of Justice at The Hague on the legal consequences of what it called Israel's occupation, settlement, and annexation of Palestinian territory, unquote. Now, it could take years before the International Court of Justice reaches any kind of decision, and its opinions are non-binding, but Israel cannot be complacent about the process. Such a ruling in the Hague could be used by the United Nations and other international bodies and would have diplomatic and economic impact. Now, this vote to have the uh, International Court of Justice rule about Israel's uh, occupation, what they call the West Bank, was supported by 87 of the UN's 193 member states, while 26 countries opposed the resolution. 53 countries actually abstained, and 27 countries were absent. Countries that voted with Israel against the decision included the United States, Canada, Australia, and eight of the European Union's 27-member state. Now, the you know Israel has since the war, uh, the Six Day War, back in 1967, Israel has been in place, and I hate the word used occupation, but Israel has been occupying an area and it's become a form of de facto annexation, and therefore it's supposed to be illegal under international law. So it's a, it's a very, it's a touchy subject, but I think what's in, in, uh, important is to know who our friends are and who uh, aren't our friends. You look at the vote in the UN, and that's that's the bottom line that's important. You have to forget the long-term significance and the ramifications of this latest United Nations move to refer to Israel as an occupier.
and sending this, they're asking the International Court of Justice for an advisory opinion. It was clear once the resolution was brought to the UN, it would pass. The only question was by how large a margin. For most people, all these anti-Israel resolutions, after a while, sort of fade into the background. They keep voting against Israel, and Israel continues to forget about these votes. Now, the general feeling in Israel, as I understand it, that the UN is against us. However, while it's interesting in the vote that took place, and Israel lost and the Palestinians won by a vote of, as I said, of 87 to 26, with 53 abstention and 27 absentees. It sort of provides a snap, a snapshot of who Israel's friends are in the international arena at this particular moment. That's the point I want to address. The um, but the question is, what determines whether a country is a friend of Israel or not? Take, for example, Azerbaijan, which is a Shiite Muslim country, the same as as Iran, by the way, with whom Israel enjoys good diplomatic ties. Israel has just opened an embassy in Tel Aviv, and Azerbaijan is one of Israel's best markets for ammunition and arms. Yet, it voted against Israel on this particular vote. So there are all kinds of explanations, the most prominent being that since it is a Muslim country and does not want to set itself apart from other Muslim lands, which, with just a few exceptions, voted against Israel, so could Jerusalem, could Israel expect them to vote together with Israel? The, the, uh, the, the question is, does a UN vote reflect what a country really thinks? Uh, take a country like the United Arab Emirates, with whom Israel has a flourishing relationship, but it also voted against Israel at the UN. So you ask yourself, is the United Arab Emirates friendly to Israel or not? Here the explanation given for this vote is that it's something that the Emirates have to do for the Palestinians to show that despite having signed an agreement with Israel, they have not abandoned the Palestinian cause. Nobody in the Muslim world wants to be seen as abandoning the Palestinian cause. So in other words, a vote in the UN does not necessarily mean if a country votes against Israel that the country is against Israel. Its vote is based on all kind of considerations. The uh, the Palestinian Authority president has said that the vote in the UN was evidence of the whole world's support for the Palestinian people. <coughs> And the question is, is that really true? What does a vote in the UN really mean? Again, summing up this, the vote, 45% 
of the world body, the UN's 193 members, voted in favor of the Palestinians. 55% of the UN countries either voted against, voted to abstain, or just did not show up to vote. Beyond that is not only the quantity, but also the quality of the states that Israeli officials always say should be considered when looking at these votes. Who has the moral majority? The world's democratic countries or the others? For instance, of the 87 countries that voted for the Palestinians, 43% are classified in the Economist Intelligent Unit's annual democracy index as being authoritarian regimes. Another 21 are classified as hybrid regimes, which are states with authoritarian and democratic features. They have features, in other words, of dictatorships and democracies. What are these countries? Mexico, Armenia, Turkey, and Pakistan. Only a quarter of the states that voted for the Palestinians were either full or flawed democracies. So it's, it, the, the point I'm trying to get here is it's not the number of countries that voted with the Palestinians and against Israel, but what were the nature, what is the nature of those countries? For now, 62% of those countries who voted with Israel, for Israel, were democracies, and only 19% were authoritative or hybrid regimes. Beyond that, looking at the list of countries voting for and against Israel reveals some very interesting trends. Take Ukraine, for example. While the preliminary draft of this resolution was first voted on in November, Ukraine voted against Israel, and that got a lot of Israelis upset. Why should Israel help Ukraine with anything while they're voted against it at the UN? The, the, the Ukraine is in the middle of a war. Israel is helping the people in the Ukraine. Then the Ukraine voted against Israel at the UN. And because of this, the Ukrainian ambassador to Israel was summoned to the foreign ministry to hear Israel's displeasure over the matter. Now, the, now, this time around, Ukraine did what it has often done in the past regarding Israel-related votes. It just didn't vote. It was absent when the General Assembly in 2012 voted to give Palestinians non-member observer status in the UN, and again, it's to, it didn't vote in 2017 when it voted to condemn U.S. President Donald Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. In other words, you can't tell by a U.N. vote what a country really is thinking. It, has, it could have good relations with Israel and vote against Israel at the U.N., or it could have hoped to have good relations with Israel and vote for Israel for its own for its own reasons. So the UN vote is not a measure really of anything.
I'll give another example. So uh, take Poland. A few years ago, Poland was grouped with other countries like the Czech Republic and Slovakia and Hungary as having carved out a special relationship with Israel among the European Union countries. These countries could be counted on not to vote against Israel in international uh, forum. But it's no longer true. There has been an angry disagreement between Israel and Poland over the Holocaust memory. This time, Poland voted against Israel rather than abstaining as it did in previous votes in 2017 and on 2012. Poland joined six other European Union countries in voting against Israel at the United Nations, and the vote of the European Union countries is always looked at carefully because of Europe's importance and the fact that these are democratic countries. Now, there were other European Union countries that voted against Israel. The Ireland, Belgium, Portugal, Malta, Luxembourg, and Slovenia. The the first five countries in this list are the most critical toward Israel in the, UN, in the European Union and have been in that position for many years. Slovenia, however, moves back and forth depending on elections and changing governments there in Slovenia. For years, let's take Sweden. Sweden was also in that camp. In fact, the leader of that camp, most critical of the Jewish state, was Sweden. It also no longer be grouped in the same category because it, 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 it abstained on Friday. It now has a three-party center-right coalition influenced heavily by a far-right-wing party. So its policies on Israel, as reflected in its voting in the UN, are not what it was just a few years ago. In other words, the point I'm trying to make is that a country's relationship with Israel and its thoughts about Israel are not always uh, reflected in a UN vote. It has its own reasons for voting for or against Israel. Now, the the uh, the European Union countries that voted with Israel two weeks ago were Austria, Croatia, the Czech Republic, Estonia, Germany, Hungary, Italy, Lithuania, and Romania. Now, the uh, the United Kingdom, no longer a member of the European Union, also voted in Israel's favor. Now, the vote of Austria is very interesting from a historical perspective. Since a decade ago, it could be counted on to vote against Israel. The right-wing governments there changed the country's attitude toward Israel, which is reflected in how Austrian now consistently votes. The same is true in Italy. Last year voted in a far-right-wing prime minister there in Italy. Cyprus and Greece, whose relations with Israel have gotten extremely close over the last 15 years, both abstained in the UN vote. And it's far better than what they used to do two decades ago, when they could always be counted on to vote against Israel. 
and they were considered among the most anti-Israel countries in the European Union. They, and by the way, another one is India, which uh, it used to vote against Israel all the time. But began, beginning in 2014, with the uh, ascension of a new government, uh, it, uh, it votes, uh, it, it abstains. Another country is Brazil. Brazil abstained, continuing a streak of favorable votes that will surely, and now as a, a leftist, has taken over the government in Brazil. Brazil has gone from a right wing to a left wing, and that will be reflected in its UN votes. Israel's situation in general in Latin America is not as good as it was years ago. At the same time, Israel has cultivated ties with Africa. Only four sub-Saharan countries voted for Israel in that vote. The Democratic Republic of Congo, Kenya, Liberia, and Togo. Another 18 voted against Israel. And countries with whom Israel has strong ties, like Ethiopia and Rwanda, were abstained. Another 14 countries did not vote. Interesting, however, 10 of these who did not vote voted for the Palestinians previously. So this may be a sign that things are changing. The it's interesting. Uh, uh, Netanyahu himself said, "When it comes to the Israel of the UN, you probably think nothing will ever change, but think again. Everything will change, and a lot sooner than you think. The change will happen in it because back home these governments are rapidly changing, and so as they change their governments, their attitudes toward Israel change." And sooner or later, it's going to change the way you vote on Israel at the UN. The, this vote against Israel showed that while things in the UN are changing, that change is, change is more gradual and less dramatic than one would have envisioned. So the bottom line in everything I've said in this segment in the program is Israel's relations with various countries around the world are not reflected in that country's vote in the UN. Countries vote in the in, in the UN for or against Israel for a variety of variety of reasons. Most I would assume, I'm not a, certainly not an expert, most of the, the reasons for their vote have to do with their internal domestic politics. So there are countries who change their vote from one year to another. They also change their governments from one year to another. So a vote in the UN is not a reflection of what a country really thinks about Israel and what relations it has in Israel. By and large, most of the votes in the UN are against Israel. That does not mean that the countries who vote against Israel are really against Israel. The vote in the U in the UN reflects other uh, other needs or other demands or other conditions in those countries. It doesn't necessarily reflect what they really think about Israel. The bottom line is we live in a very complicated world. And 
the attitude of a country to Israel is not reflected in its UN vote. The UN vote is based on other needs of a country and other restrictions on other countries and other demands on other countries and their relations themselves with other countries. Do you, as the bottom line of everything I said or this segment of program is the Israel can always expect to be voted against by member nations of the UN that this, this does not mean that these nations are anti-Israel. Their vote concerning Israel has to do with all kind of domestic and international pressures upon that country, not necessarily its real relationship toward Israel. I'll be back after the break. One, two, and three, and four and five, and six, seven, eight, nine, and ten. You're back with Jay Shapiro. On this last segment of the program, uh, if time permits, I want to touch upon several subjects not related to each other, but they're pretty much under the headlines, and I think that the listeners should be aware of them. First of all, I want to talk about Solidarity and Mutual Engagement. I'm talking now about the relationship with the American Jewish community, the American community in general, and the state of Israel. Right now, the new government here in Israel has taken office last week, and there is currently a great deal of talk in the media about an impending confrontation between American Jews and Israel due to the composition of the new Israeli government. The new Israeli government, for the first time in Israel's history, is essentially a center-to-right-wing government. Uh, the uh, Likud joined together with the the religious Zionists, and a number of what's called Haredi parties. So the, the, the farther left that this government goes is the center. There's no left wing in today's government. It's center and right. So this coalition under Prime Minister Netanyahu includes elements of the far right, there are politicians from a party that has Betzalo Smutrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, and American Jews are right to be concerned about Smutrich and Ben-Gvir, who advocate policies regarding Jewish identity and religion, as well as Israel's judiciary, that are and should may be unacceptable to the vast majority of American Jews. The American Jews are basically a liberal community. Uh, I don't know if it's really true of all the Jews, but it's true of the leadership. As I understand it, it's true of the leadership of the major Jewish organizations in the United States. So as a mostly liberal community, it's not unreasonable for American Jews to prefer an Israeli government that reflects their values. But American Jews can have confidence that their concerns will be addressed, I think. 
Netanyahu has said publicly several times that he himself will be the one to set policy, and before the Knesset, he pledged that Israel will not become a state ruled by religious law. Netanyahu has also stated that his government will represent the liberal right rather than the far right. Again, as I said a moment ago, there's essentially no left-wing parties in the present Israeli government. Now, Netanyahu has been prime minister longer than anyone else. He's been prime minister several times, and his record is clear. For well over a decade, he has proven himself to be an assertive leader who can keep his cabinet in line. So there's absolutely no reason, as I see it, to think that he will suddenly lose control and the right wing and the coalition will take over. In addition, the truth of the matter is that the so-called far right is in fact deceptively weak. They know quite well that, that, that without Netanyahu, they could not have achieved power and it's very unlikely they will directly challenge Netanyahu if he says no to the extreme policies that some of them advocate. Keep in mind that the, these two um, politicians, Betzalo Smotrich and Itamar Ben-Gvir, were on the same ticket to be voted for in the Knesset in the last election. By they themselves represent two different parties, one essentially religious Zionist and the other essentially religious Zionist right wing, but much more uh, to the right. But they were on the same list because that's how the electoral system worked in Israel. So, the, the, and the truth of the matter is, as I said a moment ago, the far right is really weak because without Netanyahu, they wouldn't be in office at all. It's also important to note that it's simply not true that American Jews want or desire a confrontation with Israel. Quite the opposite. Indeed, the very expressions of concern by the leaders of American Jewish organizations prove that they do not want a conflict with Israel. Again, as I said a moment ago, when, when you, you, you really don't know what the average American Jew thinks because all we know is statements from various Jewish organizations. So essentially what we do know is what the leadership of Jewish organizations in the United States think and what their opinion is. That does not mean that the average American Jew agrees with that, but it's these leaders of the Jewish organizations who get the headlines. So if you were to ask someone, what do American Jews really think? I don't know you can get a clear answer. The heads of the organizations are generally centered to the left, and you hear their opinions all over the place. But the question is, do they really represent the average American Jew, and I don't know. The, it's the, uh, the, and again, as I said a moment ago, American Jewish leadership, at least, does not want a confrontation with Israel. 
except for a handful of fringe Jewish anti-Zionists on the far left and religious extremists on the far right, the, the, the most American Jews are somewhere in the center. American Jews are criticizing members of the incoming government because they want to continue and deepen their relationship with Israel. The truth of the matter is, if you really think about it, many of these organizations' existence depends on their attachment to Israel. The American Jewry is very split, very divided, and uh, the one thing up to now that has kept them together in, in, uh, in crises is the, the, their, their sponsorship, if you will, and their encouragement and support of Israel. But as Jewish education in America is not, is not really what it should be, a lot of American Jews, particularly the younger generation, no longer feel that relationship with Israel because they don't have enough Jewish education and know enough about Jewish history to understand the importance of Israel. And as I said, the leadership of the American Jewish organization do not want a confrontation with Israel, no matter whether Israel has a right wing, a left wing, or a central government. Moreover, while American Jews have the right to express their belief that the new government should not go too far to the right, this cuts both ways. American Jews have an obligation not to go too far. They should not demand that Israelis conform precisely to American Jews' own political beliefs and ideology. <coughs> the, you, Israel can be very different than the American Jewish community. The American Jewish community, for example, more than 80% of the American Jews, when they vote, vote for the Democratic Party. It was that way when I was a kid, but the Democratic Party today is not the Democratic Party that I, that I knew when I was a kid. It is much more, if you will, far to the left and much more radical than it was in my day. When I was a kid, I didn't know any American Jews who voted Republican. As a matter of fact, I probably mentioned this sometimes also in the past, Senator Jacob Javits, representing New York, uh, was a, a Republican. I remember as a kid being surprised. I never knew any American Jew who voted Republican. But in those days, everybody was under the impression that, that Roosevelt had saved the world. Later on, they found out he hadn't done much about saving Jews. But that's a story unto itself. It's really important, really important, that American Jews should not demand that Israelis conform precisely to American Jews' own political beliefs and ideology. Israelis do not demand this of American Jews, and American Jews should not demand it of Israelis. They have a perfect right to express their concerns but they cannot make demands on each other. The American Jews live in a different environment, in a different reality 
than Israel does. American Jews also need to sever their ties to Israel. The not, excuse me, American Jews need not sever their ties to Israel over top politics because they have a much better option. If American Jews do not like the state of Israeli politics, they should work to change it to the extent that they can and the extent to which it is appropriate. They could come on Aliyah and vote and have an opinion here in Israel. Israel's democracy. There is no shortage of options for principled activism that can be undertaken by American Jews in a sympathetic and supportive manner. As long as they decide to remain in America, I think it's really important that not only should they have better Jewish education, but they should really know more about Jewish history and about the importance of the state of Israel. After almost 2,000 years without a state, we finally have one. When the state came into being, a lot of American Jews included immigrants from Eastern Europe and their children of these immigrants, and they went, they went out of their minds with happiness that there was a Jewish state. But that was more than 70 years ago, and a different generation has grown up in the United States. And I, I venture to say that a lot of it does not have enough Jewish education and know enough about Jewish history to understand the importance of the state, no matter who's running the government here. And perhaps most importantly, the vocal minority on either side of this issue, whether in Israel or in the United States jury, has no right to and must not be allowed to define the terms of the discourse between Israel and American Jews. Because we don't, both sides suffer if we have tremendous public disagreements. The, the silent majority has been drowned out by extremist voices on the right and the left. That's what's happening in America right now. There, there are deep divisions that have occurred in America now. And I watch, when I watch the news from the United States, and I'm talking about the general news, not just about the Jews, the uh, under the President Biden administration, there is a tremendous chasm between right and left, and that includes the Jews. Wait. Uh, uh, yes, and uh, one second, uh, I'll be with, uh, continue in a moment. I apologize to the listeners for the uh, interruption. I record this program at home, and my wife just came in and told me there's hot soup on the table, and I have to go in and have lunch. So I took a break. Now, getting back to what I was saying, the uh, relationship between American Jewry and the state of Israel. It's, I, I think I have to remind the listeners that when the state of Israel first came into being, it was overwhelmingly supported by American Jewry, even though the government in Israel was essentially a very left-wing government. It was a socialist government. 
But the people were so happy that there finally was a Jewish state after two, almost 2,000 years. They couldn't care what, whether it was capitalist or socialist. Now, the, it, 70, more than 70 years have gone by, and the people living in Israel have become much more capitalistic, and the people living in the United States have become less Jewish in a sense. There's a lot of intermarriage. And there's a lack of Jewish education. So the, the Jewish community in the United States and the Jews of Israel back in 1948 when the state came into being were one picture of at a historical moment. And now today, more than 70 years later, the American Jewish community is not the same as it was and the state of Israel is not the same as it was. So over the years, they've had to work out how to get along with each other, even though there are tremendous divides. divides. There, there, there is also a simple but uncomfortable fact that undue criticism of the new Israeli government could cause enormous collateral damage, which neither side, neither the American Jews nor Israel, desires. Right now, today, that anti-Semitism is skyrocketing in the United States with the extremist wings of both the left and right, along with major cultural figures stoking the fires of the world's oldest hatred, anti-Semitism. I read in the papers a lot of uh, very famous Americans, uh, uh, um, Hollywood actors, and uh, and people who are known on TV and are in the public eye, many of them are anti-Semitic openly. So the polarization of the American Jewish community over any issue could have very severe and dire consequences for American Jews in general. This should not silence legitimate criticism, but is a ra reality and must be taken into account by any responsible person. There can be disagreements between the American Jewish community and Israel, but you cannot allow those disagreements to play into the hands of anti-Semites to be used against us. And anti-Semitism is growing in the United States, and this has to reflect itself on how the American Jews relate to Israel. So given all of this, it should be clear that this is exactly the wrong time to foster divisions and resentment between American Jews and Israel. What we require above all in the face of the rising tide of anti-Semitism in the United States is solidarity and mutual engagement in the struggles we both face. Many American Jews may feel they have reason to fear what their Israeli brethren have voted for. They don't like the government that's been set up in Israel. The, but they have to remember that we have to remain united. And by the way, a government that comes in, in Israel at most, at most, if it doesn't fall, it can last four years. Many governments in Israel don't last that long. 
So a temporary government in Israel made up of personalities that are not uh, too favorable in the eyes of American Jewish leadership, it'll pass. No, everything is temporary. Life is temporary, as a matter of fact. So governments are temporary. Now, what both Israeli Jews and American Jews need now is not to fly apart, but come together. It's interesting, he says, in the Talmud it says, Kol Yisrael Arevim Zeh All of Israel is responsible for one another. And this is the very best way to silence the extremist voices on both sides and ensure that we retain our sense of solidarity and mutual affection. It's kept us going for 3,000 years, it should hopefully and prayerfully help us for the next four years also. There will be, be disagreements, but we are one people. Thanks again for listening. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel, plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India, and I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.